Yeah, there, 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 was, there was no Gatwick drone. <laughs> there's clearly no Gatwick drone. No, there, there was no photographic evidence of a Gatwick drone. There was no detection. They they ruined uh, that poor guy's Christmas. Uh, they ruined a lot of people's Christmas. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Alice Smith Issues podcast. My name is Ethi Lesh, I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'll be joined by my co-host, the Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as Sam Dimitri, the Research Director at the Entrepreneurs Network. In this episode, we'll be discussing COP26, tech mergers, and drones. COP26 is underway in Glasgow, with global leaders having flown in and out earlier this week. There have been agreements to reduce methane emissions and end deforestation by 2030, but major emitters like India and China have refused to join the net zero by 2050 target that Boris was hoping would lead the conference. Online, a lot of the debate has focused on whether or not we should be having this conference in the first place and whether it's hypocritical for so many leaders to be using private jets to get there. What's your take on that, Sam? My take, I think it's obviously not hypocritical. Uh, clearly, uh, if you're going to negotiate a massive international agreement uh, where you need to you know, get people with extremely different perspectives, uh, you know, you've got democracies, non-democracies, they're all coming together. I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to meet in person. Um, and I think it's, it's just inevitably the case that a lot of world leaders are going to be travelling by private jet or their national air, national air, aircraft or whatever, like Air Force One. So I, I, don't, I don't really think it's um, unreasonable. I think I think people sort of focus too much on hypocrisy sometimes. But but just pushing back there ever so slightly, I mean, I don't have an issue with anyone uh, taking a plane or a private jet anywhere they like. I mean, they, they can do what they please. The issue, though, is... Um, when a lot of those leaders or, or politicians get quite sanctimonious about other people's behaviour. So they're trying to tell us to change our behaviour and putting in place policies that manipulate our behaviour, and yet they don't seem to feel the impact of that. And then I think that fairly drives a lot of frustration and questions about the message that they're selling. Um, is, is climate change really that much of an issue if they're not willing to make a sacrifice? I, th- I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's a fair point. What, what, what I'd say to that, I guess, is... So there are some times where you, you see sort of anti-hypocrisy efforts that are so ridiculous that they actually self-undermine. So classic cases, Greta going across from the UK to the U, to, I think it was like from Norway or somewhere, all the way to the US via boat. Now, that's clearly unpleasant and it's not like setting a precedent or an example for people. Uh, and it just shows that maybe some of these things we can't actually decarbonize very well. In general, I'm not really in favour of the sort of focusing on individual behaviours. Um, you know, I wrote a piece a while back for CapEx, which looked at how many of the things we think are green, in fact, actually uh, ca- can be quite counterintuitive. So things like using the dishwasher is greener than doing your washing up normally. It actually uses less water and heats less water. Um, cloth nappies maybe they're not as uh, eco-friendly as the disposable kind because actually washing them uses a lot of energy so you constantly have cases like this and if the focus is just on these individual things then I, I think it's fair enough if people want to challenge them but fundamentally what we need is you know some serious sort of global action where the incentives are put in place that businesses and innovate around those challenges and that's what we've seen where in the UK where we've got a carbon price on electricity 
Uh, and so as a result, we've seen a massive decarbonisation of the electricity grid. We need to apply that to, to gas and then apply that to transport as well now. There's a, a good, a classic example of the sort of stuff that you wrote about in that piece a while back, Sam, with the BBC recently tweeting just basically uncritically that locally sourced food is better for the environment um, because there's less transport costs involved in that. A classic one that I think a lot of people naturally believe and it seems intuitively plausible to most people. And then you look at, say, you know, the actual carbon emissions from production um, versus transportation you find that certain production methods are, are far more important to the overall carbon footprint of a, uh, a foodstuff um, than the actual transport itself and I think that sort of that emphasis on individual behavioral change as you say which seems to dominate a lot of the the discussion both in terms of criticizing politicians for not being able to do it very effectively but also some of the stuff that's come out of COP26 is just it's just the wrong the wrong focus and it kind of comes from this this mindset of well we need to we need to primarily focus on how people think how people behave as opposed to the sort of larger incentives that are in place that determine uh, large groups of people's behavior just, it's, just, it's far more effective well kind of looking more broadly do, do we think cop26 is actually achieving anything at this point that the global leaders have flown out there's been i guess some agreements on methane and, and deforestation although they're not enforceable and not necessarily every country has signed up to those commitments do, do we think we're actually getting somewhere at cop26 um or were expectations too high were these conferences ever actually going to do anything to actually achieve that much in the first place? I mean, there's definitely been some highlights that I think were well received. You look at um, Brazil's commitments on deforestation, which seem fairly unprecedented. India at last agreeing to a target, even if it's not 2050. But, <laughs> by, but 20, by 2070. 20, yeah, 2070. But again, th- th- these sort of things, they're, they're not... Um, you know, they're not massive and, and world-changing, but they are at least the beginning of uh, of certain countries that previously hadn't been as involved or as interested in climate policy, at least, you know, making gestures towards this being important now, you know, whether or not the targets agreed on are actually that useful is quite a, a different it, matter. It, but it the doesn't seem symbolism to... of it, I think, is at least uh, a positive. It doesn't seem to me that these conferences actually achieve that much. It's what incentives you're willing to put in place domestically as you were getting out a second ago, Sam, with things like, you know, do you in- introduce a carbon tax? Do you ch- change around the-, the structure of your economy meaningfully in an economically efficient way? Or And then secondary to that, I think a lot more importantly, what's the innovation behind that that's going to enable the, the cost prices to go down something like solar and wind? I mean, where, where a lot of countries are doing... Um, like the UK are probably doing better than people might have expected because the cost prices have gone down. It's got nothing to do with these targets and commitments. It all feels very top-down, uh, central planning. We're going to set a target. Um, it's it, What actually happens in the real world, though, is, is something else altogether. I think that there is an element to that. But I think one of the more positive things is the way that international agreements on climate change since Paris so they're no longer binding agreements. It's not like trying to tie everyone into one system. It's now sort of a combination of voluntary and bilateral agreements sort of building on top of each other. Uh, and I think that's kind of helpful because, first of all, it's a lot more politically um, achievable. Um, and then, and so as a result, you know, we have seen lots of progress on climate in, in recent years. And the UK is a good example in terms of having a net zero target and, you know, actually committing. But that kind of 
puts up pressure on other countries to join in and slowly i think i think i think one of the key things is um pricing is really really important um and the and you need to be able to do pricing in a way where you don't have the problem of carbon leakage you don't want to say we're going to have the greenest energy supply in the world but as a result no steel manufacturing or you know wind turbine manufacturing even can actually take place in britain because it's just not uh, economically viable so you need to look at things like carbon border adjustments where essentially we ensure that the same carbon price applies across the world and i think on this front uh, there is some sort of need to get lots of countries to agree and not just the developed countries uh, or like the OECD G- G20 because uh, there's a risk that this could actually get tied up in sort of WTO litigation and you don't really want that to happen. Yeah, though, there hasn't actually been much discussion about uh, carbon pricing at, at COP26. I think the EU's flagged that they're um, it, intending to go ahead with it, the C, the C-band, the, the carbon adjustment border mechanism that, that does exactly what you're talking about, which is that on at least some inputs um, of raw materials would tax, better tax based upon their um, carbon content. That seems like a, a sensible policy to, to avoid that carbon leakage, but there doesn't seem to be much, um, I guess, active steps on that. It seems to be, and I think this is speaks kind of a, to a deeper political issue in some way when it comes to COP26, which is a question about who pays and how we pay for things. Um, and there's a lack of willingness to talk about kind of a broader-based carbon pricing because of a, a, a backlash. So instead, we subsidise things massively. We we change things around the edges. We regulate a lot. We we do all this other, I, I would argue, much less efficient response to climate change because we're not willing to do something that might be as politically um, controversial as, as putting in place just a, a broad-based carbon tax. And, and I think on carbon taxation, there, there was a really good chart in the, I think it was in the budget, it might have been in the Treasury's net zero paper. Um, but what, what, what it showed essentially was that if you look at any government policy to do with climate designed to get to net zero, in some way it was increasing costs upon households. So you can have it directly in terms of a tax, but also indirectly regulation putting up the cost of something or uh, government investment pushing up uh, borrowing rates, you know, the cost of uh, borrowing or, you know, leading to taxes being raised elsewhere. So no matter what you do, it's always going to fall upon consumers. So I think given that the UK is committed to a target, it's vital that as much of that target as possible is reached via carbon pricing as the key mechanism. And I think this is actually something the Treasury recognises uh, and is trying to make a case on. I think other areas of government, perhaps it's easier to, it's more popular to announce spending than it is to announce a tax. So um, that, that I think, is one issue. And then there's also the issue of how do you make sure that uh, any carbon tax isn't perceived as regressive. Now, I think, I think sometimes this is overstated because, as I said, every, all the costs will fall upon households. So at the end of the day, if you're, uh, if you're you know, getting to net zero by imposing regulations or by um spending money that is actually money that you know that could have been spent on uh more universal credit or that could have been spent on tax cuts uh for the low paid uh you know and same with um same with you know regulation that's pushing up costs so it all ends up hitting the poorest so i actually think carbon tax is probably more progressive than you think even without some sort of uh recycling of the funds 
in my in, in my view, I think we should sort of have, take a mixed approach. Uh, Austria had something, did something really interesting, or have at least proposed doing something really interesting. I think the government has collapsed since then, or at least the prime minister has resigned, or something something along those lines. But uh, the proposal uh, was essentially that they would tax carbon more, uh, tax pollution more, and tax uh, work and investment less. So they were cutting corporate taxes, they were cutting employment taxes, uh, and they were increasing uh, things like child benefit. I think a similar proposal in the UK would, would do would be good for both increasing growth and in, improving the sort of overall progressivity and the political sailability of the idea. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that the UK those are in the worst, which is oh, the opposite response um, with Rishi's plans to require UK firms to state how they intend to reach climate change targets. Now, that nothing about that's going to be particularly binding, but it will just be kind of an additional red tape burden on these companies um, that will achieve questionable results, at least in my mind. What I'm kind of interested, though, is a lot of the rhetoric we hear around these conferences that ends up being quite apocalyptic. We, we heard it from Boris earlier in the week that it's one minute to midnight. Apparently, he's increased the odds and said that suddenly over the last few days, everything's gotten a little bit better. So probably preparing to declare success at this conference. Is it kind of a little bit, getting a little bit absurd? Um, there was a good article from, from Tom Shivers in Unheard about how uh, a lot of the rhetoric we hear about what could happen because of climate change is based upon the most extreme and probably at this point unrealistic model, which is which is eight, the 8.5 um, degree increase model, when in fact we're kind of at the very worst on track for three or four degrees and the target is 1.5 to, to two degrees. It seems like a lot of the um, sense around this is, is very much exaggerated and disconnected from reality. So climate change is a big problem, but not the, the end of the world. And it's probably almost a fixable problem. And then I also have to wonder if we declare it effectively an unfixable problem, everything's, you know, going to be terrible. Um, we need to go for, you know, um, Greta Thunberg or George Mumbian and, you know, chair up the capitalist system. Do we end up just kind of weakening public support for doing things about climate change and, and, and drive people um, against the, any kind of reasonable kind of climate change policy? I, I think that whenever you're thinking about a potential you know, existential risk scenario like climate change, you should always look into the most unlikely but still possible options. So the actual idea of looking into RCP 8.5, the, the kind of business as usual scenario, even though, as you say, Matthew, is not necessarily very likely. Um, and then even within that, some of the worst predictions um, in relation to, say, you know, coral reef collapse or something within that 8.5 scenario are, are still unlikely even if we do have that level of warming it, it's worth doing right because this still possible and when the stakes are so high i think that it's vital that you look into any sort of scenario that could plausibly or realistically happen that said you mentioned some of the downsides is that with just focusing or, or mainly focusing certainly amongst amongst journalists and policymakers on something that is far less likely than most other scenarios uh what you're going to get is if anything a kind of disincentive for, for sometimes for, for people to change or for governments at least to change their behavior because it's it's kind of saying well we're, we're screwed you know there's not there's not much chance of changing things and actually rather than motivating people i feel as though people say well you know we, we can't we can't change that much in that short period of time so let's just not bother almost that seems to be the conclusion a lot of the time when you you kind of confront people with this 
sort of thing. I think, what was Boris's metaphor? I mean, you had one minute to midnight and then five one down at half time. Yeah, we're we're like two to five now, so the, the odds are getting better. I don't know what's yeah, changed. Change. I mean, although you do, I'm not saying we shouldn't do work about you know what could be the most extreme scenario. Surely, though, Sam, there's a bit of a problem with putting out the most extreme scenario, calling it business as usual when in fact. Um, we're not. That is no longer business as usual. It's, it's no longer a reasonable um, worst case scenario because um, of the actions we've already taken and, and taking, and the already you know massive cost decreases and things like solar and wind. Just as one part of the story, is it not kind of absurd to still be talking about an apocalyptic scenario that is not anywhere near reality? I, well, I, th- I think so. Some of the more extreme scenarios. Um... Part, part of what's involved is looking at the uncertainty on climate. So it might be the case that we can just hit, we end up hitting certain tipping points. So there becomes these negative feedback loops. So if that goes, so, you know, maybe maybe something melts and that causes something else to emit more carbon. And so then you get a really negative back and forth loop. Um, so I think, I think that's one of the reasons why you should sort of take the sort of insurance policy approach and actually... Uh, try try to undershoot what you think would be the optimal outcome, so to speak, just because you want to avoid the sort of really extreme scenarios. But I do think that most people do need to be better educated about the amazing progress that's been made um, and how a lot of that progress has been, pretty much all of the progress has been driven by private sector innovation. You know, it's falling battery costs. It's the fact that electric vehicles... Uh, who who would have t- who would have thought uh, twenty years ago that one of the biggest hate figures now for the anti capitalist left is the uh, person who has made electric vehicles the prime uh, the likely primary mode of transport in the next ten years, uh, who's uh, reduced the costs and made it cool to own an electric vehicle. Back at back, I, I remember when people were talking about how oil companies were you know, launching conspiracies against electric vehicles and all of that was the sort of argument <laughs> from those people. Now they're, they're, they're going after a Musk. Um, so, so I think the, the fact that, you know, someone like, someone like Elon Musk can even exist making electric cars shows how far we've come and how far we expect to go because obviously a lot of Tesla's value is based on the fact that in the future we think they're going to be doing even more, uh, selling even more cars. So I, th- I think, yeah, we need to focus on the progress we're making and the sort of general trajectory. So I think likely we'll probably continue to see these cost decreases and we need to look at how we can apply these cost decreases elsewhere. And I think a lot of it is by learning by doing and deployment. So we need to remove any barriers to deployment. And things like carbon pricing, while um, they don't necessarily uh, lead to guaranteed increases at R&D, just the fact that we're deploying wind technology for instance, and we have been doing over the last sort of 10, 15 years to, to a greater greater level, we've learned so much about how to make wind turbines more efficient in that process. So we now know that actually size is the main issue. So if you look, you compare the size of wind turbines from uh, 15 years ago to today, I mean, you have one, a single like wind turbine um, uh what's the arm i guess you'd call it i'm not sure but they're 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 like the length of a football pitch now they can be absolutely massive it's really incredible stuff and that's been learned through installing and doing we've just learned better practices and it's kind of goes back to adam smith i guess in in the, the value of specialization is that people learn tasks and by doing those tasks over and over again they discover new ways of uh improving those tasks so that's why you know the, the pin factory is is so efficient 
Oh, wow. You're getting challenged for your amazing segue there, Lesh. That's pretty special. <laughs> well, on the note of how excellent and optimistic we are about the, the pin factory and uh, specialization, let, let's move on to our next chat about tech mergers. Regulators in the UK and elsewhere are taking an increasingly harsh view about mergers and acquisitions, especially in the tech sector. Uh, and Sam, I know that you, along with um, Sam Bowman, has have written a recent paper on this topic of M&A in the tech sector. Just to start off, has the rise of big tech led to monopolies or perhaps an oligopoly? You've got kind of people worried that network effects and uh, scale result in winner-takes-all scenarios for platforms. Yeah, so I th- I th- definitely a lot more concern around competition in tech than there was maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, I think some of it is sort of displacing other concerns. So you'll see concerns about Facebook and Twitter and Google and how they spread misinformation or how they uh, use to help terrorists and all these other crazy reasons. Um, It's not clear to me that they're um, competition problems. Um, For instance, in the case of the algorithm on Facebook and YouTube, they show you things that you like. You'd presume in a more competitive marketplace, uh, algorithms would be even more intensely showing you things that you like. Uh, and that they think you're likely to like, you get even worse um, echo chamber effects. So a lot of those concerns are not necessarily driven by competition economics. They're driven by other concerns and they've sort of all been misplaced together. I think in general, um, we have seen quite a lot of innovation in, in tech and consumers, again, pay a zero price to access pretty amazing services. So I think on that, it's hard to prove consumer harm. Some, some people argue that the consumer harm is due to missed innovation. So you say, well, if Google faced more competition, what other services would be, would be getting? It's very hard to act on that as a policy round because you know, you, it's very hard for a regulator to understand the direction of an industry, um, especially in one that's as fast changing as technology. You might, they might be able to do that in something like I don't know, um, utilities, so like water, it's much, it's much harder to uh, work out what, what's next. I mean, I doubt many regulators would have thought much about the metaverse until about two weeks, about, about a week ago. But now, obviously, that's, that's going to be the next uh, frontier in, in terms of uh, social media and tech, and tech potentially. So that, that's something that they have to really consider, and it's very hard for them to do that. The, the, the concern has been raised since the UK published uh, the UK government published a Furman review. So Jason Furman, who was uh, Obama's chief economic advisor, uh, put out a report looking at competition in digital markets. Uh, one of the proposed, he, he found that there were potential for harm. He didn't point to too much harm, I think, but that he definitely identified areas where there could be competition problems and suggested that the government created what's called a digital markets unit within the CMA. So they'd be specialised in digital governments and since the proposals for that have come out, so the idea would be that there would be this digital markets unit and they would set up a code of conduct to govern the actions of companies that they say have a strategic market status. Um, and that could involve how they interact with suppliers. So I don't know if you know about gro- groceries have a uh, code, code 
uh, of conduct. So if you're a if you're a if you're I don't know Tesco and you want to delist one of your suppliers because you don't think their goods are selling very well, or you think you can shift shift goods, it's actually very hard to to actually kick them off. You have to go through quite a lengthy process, and give them quite a few chances. Um, so potentially something like this would happen in tech. And the real the real issue uh, that that I think has concerned a lot of startups and a lot of VC investors in the UK is what this means for tech mergers. So it's worth remembering that most startups fail, um, and most most investors invest in startups solely on the potential that they'll get a very uh, lucrative exit. And if you and there's essentially two ways you can exit. Or well, three, I guess, if you want to become a long-term, sustainably profitable company. Uh, but even then, the investors will probably exit via IPO, which is the main way. Um, but then a lot of companies won't quite get there because perhaps their, their idea really complements another business but isn't uh, self-sustaining. Or perhaps they have lots of useful technology, but that's not a product that they could sell on their own. Um, and then in that case, they'll sell up to a larger tech firm. And what the government is considering is making the, the bar of evidence that a company has to uh, pass to, 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 have, to have their merger approved a lot, a lot tougher for them. So at the moment, the government can block any merger deal if they think there's a chance, uh, there's a significant chance of substantially lessening competition. Um, and that means like a more than 50% chance. What they're looking at is something called a realistic prospect test, and that would make it closer to, which, which has been defined in law as uh, greater than fanciful at about more than 10%, but still less than 50%. <laughs> I think that's, that's potentially going to cause a lot of problems because most tech mergers, I don't think, are problems in terms of competition. The, the kind of thing that, that gets me with that particular standard that they're thinking of bringing in is basically saying, you know, if smart people can come up with a reasonable sounding justification, even if it's, you know, absolute rubbish, that's basically grounds to do it. It seems like great, greater than fanciful is basically carte blanche in this sort of area, right? It's not as though, you know, people working for the CMA aren't able to come up with a rational sounding justification for pretty much anything when it comes to competition policy or maybe I'm, I'm being too pessimistic there about the the new standards but Matthew I know you had to wanted to come in on this as well yeah I just think it's quite extraordinary the extent to which competition authorities are willing to step in in cases where there isn't really any proof of harm um there isn't even any really strong indication of harm it's just that they can establish a theoretical scenario in which they can claim that there could be some realistic harm to competition in the future um, but the thing about this, of course, is, you know, I think about this kind of in historical terms, we've heard a lot in, in recent decades about supposed tech monopolies. Um, you had claims about MySpace being monopoly, you had all these issues around Internet Explorer in the 1990s that have been forgotten. This idea that Internet Explorer is such a, a powerful player um, because it's bundled in with Microsoft um, Windows and no one can ever get another browser. And, you know, it's it wasn't clear where the harm was consumed in the first place. And ultimately what fixed that problem was innovation in both cases was MySpace had a huge um, benefit, direct benefit uh, in, in having a, a large audience. But then Facebook came along, innovated, became the best. And because the switching costs are quite low, people swap 
to another product. It's the same thing with Google Search. It, the, the switching costs, is, uh, costs away from Google Search are extremely low, but everyone knows that Google Search is just fundamentally providing them a, a bigger, better product, product. And I think what tends to happen in the competition world quite often, um, it's not something necessarily is my, my level of expertise, but it's, it's usually the, the perception is big is bad. And if something is big, they therefore have market power and therefore the state is justified in restricting their ability to operate in some meaningful way. Um, when in fact, the reason company might be big, the reason why Google search might be so popular or, or Facebook's Instagram, whatever else it might be, is because they're actually providing a very good product to people. Um, and if somebody else came along and provided an equally good product, or, or I should say a better product, people would switch that product instead. The, 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 the lock-in effects are actually much less than people suspect. Um, I think we saw this relatively recently when when WhatsApp and uh, shut down along with uh, the entire Facebook infrastructure. People could go to other places to complain about it. If it had stayed shut down, people would have reconstituted their conversations in on Twitter as, as we momentarily did as the ASI, um, for example. So th- there's nothing to stop people from moving around. It's actually very easy to do. That, and I think the network effect claims are way over overact. Yeah, and I think if you... The network effect argument, the idea that so there there, is, there clearly are efficiencies to be gained from being a large platform, right? If all your friends are on the same network, that's clearly valuable because that means you can you know talk to them, uh, arrange services or whatever. That's great, but switching costs are such that you know we pretty much everyone has a phone number. So you so so WhatsApp didn't need access to the Facebook social graph. They didn't need access to your Twitter follows or anything like that or your email account if you just put in your phone number or your contact book from your phone you were able to replicate your social network effectively on WhatsApp um, and company and, and, it, and it's clear that you because we've had companies rise in the last 10 years we've had Snapchat uh, we've had TikTok and they've both shown that you know network effects are insurmountable if you have a good enough product people will switch um, so, so I think I think they're often overblown, and I think you know Google make the argument on competition policy. They say competition is only a click away. If you really want to use DuckDuckGo, you can. It's not hard. Uh, the fact that people stay with something like Google isn't necessarily due to the network effect, but it's just due to the fact that you know Google provides a slightly better service. Um, and, you know, the, the competitors probably can't realistically provide a service that's better enough to justify switching and changing, changing your habits. Um, on, the competi- on the merger front, I think, I think the real concern is that if you remove paths for exits, um, what happens is it's harder for entry. So if you, if you want to start a new business uh, that's going to compete with maybe Facebook or Twitter or Google or whatever, then you need to raise uh, a lot of capital for that. Um, and investors will only invest if they expect you to have a route to exit. Now, that one route could be IPO, but that's putting all your eggs in one basket, and that's potentially very, very risky. Um, so the ability to perhaps, you know, you, your, your new social network's not brilliant, but you've come up with a really, really great way of... Uh, you know, notifying people about conversations that are happening, or you found some, like, great algorithmic work the fact that you can then uh, cash out for not well, not what you intended to make in the first place but still a very large sum by selling up to a larger uh, tech company 
de-risks that investment from the VC's perspective. And that means you get greater contestability in the first place. I think that that's the key issue. You know, we shouldn't think about markets in terms of market share alone. That one company has a 80% market share or, an, or a 70% market share isn't enough to say, to, to say that it has uh, market power. Um, you have to also consider how contestable that market is. If you know, if 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 YouTube started charging uh, 10p per view to per, to a video view or something like that, pretty soon people would switch, and pretty soon people would develop a competitor. And so these markets are contestable. There there is innovation around the corner, and companies are very very paranoid about that potential innovation. So as a result, they're constantly investing in R and D. And if you look at the R and D investments of all the big companies, they're extremely large. Uh, and they, you know, they do off even the R and D investments of sort of companies like pharmaceuticals, where literally they either sell drugs or they do R and D. So it really puts it into perspective. Just a, a kind of follow up on this, Sam, because I, I imagine that you, like me, did A level economics. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you did, but um, in A level economics, you learn about contestability and how market concentration is not necessarily the best measure of how competitive a market is. Is it just the case that the you know, the, the CMA and people involved in the competition space more broadly, do, do they recognize this objection? Do they take it seriously? Or is it just something that they haven't even considered in some cases? How cynical should I be about the competition authorities? In the, they, they, they definitely think about it, but I think they're skeptical of how contestable these markets are. They, they tend to think that network effects are a reason for a market not to be considered contestable. But the fact that, you know, Facebook are paranoid about TikTok and, you know, TikTok is sort of uh, attracting people away from Instagram and that's a huge concern for them shows that these markets are contestable. But you do need to have uh, a good product and there does need to be sort of a serious innovation. You know, it's, it's not it's the, one of the problems is people often think about sort of. Um, they go back to Econ A level and they think about perfect competition. They go back to Econ 101 at university and think, they think about perfect competition, you know, a market with many, many sellers, all charging, all selling essentially the same product, all charging as low a price as possible. That gives them just enough profit to justify them doing it in the first place, but no more. In reality, uh, most goods aren't like that, but it's still... Um, it's still a useful sort of tool to think about competition in that way. But you've got to remember that, you know, companies are responding to potential innovation. And in some cases, um, competition doesn't look like everyone charging the same price and everyone doing the same thing. It might look like one or two companies having a large market share, but then people investing heavily in trying to uh, completely disrupt that that industry altogether. So, um, you know, something like a, a social network is, is kind of a way of disrupting the phone company's monopoly to, to an extent in terms of how communication works but it's a completely different way of imagining it so if you're thinking about it in terms of you know the standard econ 101 uh you know many goods many sellers oversimplifying it you're going to make mistakes uh, and you're going to sadly uh, over-regulate in response to highly innovative sectors and just to finish up on this section for a kind of recent example of where M&A policy can go pretty wrong. I know, Matthew, you've been looking at the um, 
Facebook's attempted acquisition of Giphy, which, if I remember rightly, that's when you're um, you're going to send stickers on Messenger and you get a choice of what gifts to send. Right? That's uh, what Giphy's all about. Why did the or why is the CMA looking to block this acquisition? And and what have you found looking into this? Yeah, look, I think it's quite a fascinating case study of what we're, we're talking about specifically here, which is the the tendency of uh, competition authorities to really have ramped up their activity and feel a need to step in, just just feel this intrinsic need to intervene. And as you said, Giphy um, is a is a service that allows you to search um, gifts, you know, digital gifts, and then it's it's built into um, various apps. So I think it was previously already built into Google, so already built into Facebook Messenger, and um, that you could use Giphy to find it. But also, you could there's a separate Giphy app, so you can find um, gifts using their app. This, uh, Facebook went to acquire that. It was actually a relatively small uh, decision when, when it comes to Facebook's acquisitions. It was something like 30 million. Apparently didn't even go to the board, um, which which in their terms is means it's not very significant. But the CMA has decided um, to look into it, even though um, Giphy didn't have a presence really, in particularly in the UK, separately. Um, Giphy was not something that had any direct ability to actually compete with Facebook. They didn't have a revenue stream that um, that would meaningfully provide them a, a profitable outcome. Like it's not something that could have IPO'd and been a major social media network. They were trying to do some kind of advertising um, to clean the US when it, when it came to, to digital gifts. Um, but the, the, the broader truth of it was that, that there was no realistic counterfactual in which um, Giphy could have been an alternative um, to Facebook. But nevertheless... In what we kind of consider to be quite a power grab, uh, or, or effectively the, the CMA deciding that it, it has jurisdiction over this um, acquisition that happened elsewhere, and deciding uh, on the basis of a theoretical harm, seeing that that bar extremely low, and um, they're, they're they're trying to block it. They haven't confirmed the decision, but their initial decision was to to block this merger. Um, and I think it will send a lot of concerns down um, the the tech industry in the UK, but even. It could have a potential global effect just because of the willingness to intervene. Well, on that depressing note, and hopefully the CMA will uh, will see sense on some of this stuff, it's time to move on to our final section on the potential of drones to become a massive industry in the UK. Drones could be a £42 billion industry in the UK by the end of the decade, according to some projections according to other projections it could be by the end of the century but that's mainly Matthew Lesh's spelling mistakes in our podcast plan uh, just to start off I guess what is the kind of the likely or the imagined role for drones in the economy over the coming years what where are we at already in terms of the drone industry in the UK and what sort of applications can we see realistically coming down the road well I think there's sort of that you can sort of break it apart into three big categories. So first you've got inspection, um, looking at how drones can be used to improve UK infrastructure. So it's very, very expensive to inspect, for instance, pylons. You know, you have to send someone up. It's a very dangerous job. Uh, they can only, you, can, you have to have two people watching them down there. You, have, you know, uh, not, not, it's, you, you know, in a labour shortage, not many people want to really uh, carry that risk to do that job. Uh, and there's lots of jobs like that, like railway engineer, uh, where, you know, they, they require people to be skilled um, and they require lots of manpower. With drones, what you can do is you can ex- it speed up that testing process. Um, you can inspect things, you know, 
what would what would usually take you know a whole day to inspect a trap could instead take a few hours. So it's it, there's potentially large gains just in inspection. Uh, but that that's kind of what we're doing at the moment, and you don't need too many regulatory changes to enable that as an industry. So you know you don't really need to be beyond visual line of sight, which is the key challenge. The idea of drones flying where the pilot themselves isn't looking directly at the drone. Um, but then you come onto the more interesting um, uses. So first you have uh, delivery. Um, so drones could play a really important role in how we get our groceries. Uh, we, we, we initially started this project because I was talking to an entrepreneur who was looking at how they could help the NHS using drones. So they, they were saying that you look at um, things like test delivery, the sooner you get a test to the lab, the more accurate that test is going to be. In some parts of the country, it takes a real while to transfer transfer um, tests from one lab to another, and that creates a big holdup. It means it takes longer to treat people. Um, and they were saying, why don't we use drones uh, and you could have a sort of highway between two hospitals uh, the drones can pick up the test samples, drop them off at the other hospital, and that could take 10 minutes to transfer rather than two hours, and that can eliminate inefficiencies in that process. It could go as far as you know Amazon doing deliveries via drone. I think that's probably more likely than not to happen eventually. Um, so that, that's the next use, and that could massively uh, cut costs in terms of delivery. But it also means that if you live in areas where they're remote in some way, that you have access to those benefits, which I think is is going to, which is actually a really key point. I think people overlook that. You know, it's giving people in rural areas the benefits of a city. You know, if you know if you if you uh, leave leave the M twenty five, the the list of options on delivery isn't quite as inspiring. But if you have drones that can transport your meal over, you know. 30 miles in, in under an hour or something like that, then all of a sudden you have a lot more options uh, and that's a lot more appealing. In the not so too distant future, we will have Amazon uh, drones competing with your McDonald's drone to get you the fastest possible goods and services and food uh, by your door, hopefully. Yeah, and then the final, the final sort of use uh, of the three, and this is going to be the hardest, um, this is probably the most hypothetical, although there are companies definitely working on this. Uh, uh, I think one of them shared a link to our report, which is exciting. Um, and that's transportation. The idea of having uh, vertical takeoff and landing drones, which is effectively another way of saying flying cars. Uh, they're a bit more like helicopters than flying cars. Uh, some people will say that it's not a flying car unless you have wheels that go up uh, back to the future, sir style but i for, for me i think the, these will be what people call flying cars in the future um and that could potentially again open up uh intercity travel cut costs and cut times um uber were looking at this uh, they, they they sort of got out of it when they sort of focused more on their core business but there were lots of companies looking at ehang in china probably one of the largest drone companies in the world um have, have flown some trials so this 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 is not a this is not science fiction, but it feels like it. So those, those are the three key uses, and they could really transform our economy. The problem is actually getting those products into the market, and that re means resolving some of the regulatory challenges. Yeah, and I think it'd probably move on to some of those regulatory challenges very 
quickly one of my worries with uh, extending delicious delivery access outside the M25 is it, it reduces incentives for people to move to cities and actually we should be trying to concentrate every single person <laughs> in a city and uh, and wage war on the countryside but that's just me um, looking at the the kind of regulatory barriers that you mentioned um, I guess that the kind of the clearest one here, and Sam, you wrote, wrote about this in the recent report, is that the issue with how drones interact with uh, recreational aircraft currently um, and some of the kind of problems that currently exist in that space. Can you just yeah, quickly elaborate on what those issues are and then your proposed solution in the paper? Yeah, so air, anything to do with aerospace is extremely, extremely safety obsessed for very good reasons, right? It's why flying on planes, even though it seems like the most dangerous thing in the world, if you were to explain it to someone who'd never heard of a plane, actually, it's one of the safest forms of travel. Uh, you know, everything has a, not just uh, not just a fail-safe, but a fail-safe for the fail-safe. You know, pilots who have glasses have to bring, I think, three pairs of glasses or two pairs of glasses, just in case their glasses break and they still need to control the plane. They're, you know, people think about all these risks really, really carefully. So it's a very risk-averse sector. Um, and what you need effectively for drones to work is a way of having drones sharing the space with pilots, sharing sharing that sort of uh, unregulated airspace where uh, there's a there's a lot less restriction where who and when you can fly. Uh, but the problem is recreational aircraft, uh, unlike commercial aircraft, don't have any and drones themselves don't have any requirement to be uh, what's called electronically conspicuous. It means that how do you see drones effectively uh, and how do, how do drones see recreational aircraft? There's no like sensor. All it is is uh, sort of uh, what's, what's known as detect and avoid. So, you know, the drone sees a plane coming and gets out of the way like a bird would. Obviously, birds sometimes hit planes. Uh, so as a result, <laughs> they, they wanted to say that we, we don't want you just to be able to avoid a plane if you end up looking like you're about to crash into it. We also want to make sure that you don't get into that situation in the first place. And so that means we need a system of... Uh, unmanned air traffic control Now NASA for the past 20 30 years have been developing it um, thinking quite quite long and it's the sort of technology is there um, and there's been trials in the UK but fundamentally you need that cons- conspicuity between aircraft you need the be- they need to be visible to each other and unless they and if they're not visible to each other then that this system just doesn't work and that's a complete barrier to the rest now it's it's a funny thing where if you want to enable a lot more commerce and a lot more enterprise you need to solve this problem before you can get there um and what what we suggest is the, the simple thing is to make it a regulatory requirement for every single recreational aircraft to have this so, so that they, they're no longer imposing that risk on drone pilots or, or other things. So that would be the first step. But obviously we expect that um, pilots might object to being recreational pilots. It's a pretty expensive hobby in the first place. Um, they might object to a 500 to £300 pound charge, which is what we expect it to cost. And you can buy, you know, you can buy trackers already and quite, quite a lot of uh, pilots already have it. Government currently gives you a 50% discount if you want to install something like this. We're saying that the government should just pay for it outright. There's not that many recreational pilots in the UK. Um, the cost would be extremely, extremely low. Uh, we're talking about in the tens of millions, not in the, you know, not hundreds of millions or billions. 
and that would be a one-off cost effectively. Uh, and that once you did that, you would unlock all of this enterprise. You're effectively unlocking a forty-two billion pound sector by the end of the decade, according to the PwC uh, forecast. So if you can just get that little, if you can remove that little obstacle, suddenly you're un- opening the door to so much innovation. And that's and that's what we we're really focused on. We want to just get that get that first hurdle out of the way, and then the UK can become a sort of real leader in drones and doing trials of of unmanned air traffic control, of which there are businesses working on the way uh, that you'd manage that, uh, whether this would be a service, uh, who who gets paid for it, how that service works. Um, There are businesses in the UK already thinking deeply about that and trying to come up with their own offerings. But their businesses fundamentally rely on us solving that conspicuity problem. So let's solve that problem and then we can unlock all this innovation. So a couple of follow-ups on that. The, the first being, I, I guess, just a question of rather than, you, you know, you, you opt, at least you, you advocate for making a, the taxpayer pick up the, pick up the bill as opposed to the individual recreational aircraft. Is that mainly a, a kind of political measure? Are we just trying to make this more appealing um, in, in order to get through? Because I can't, I can't imagine that the recreational aircraft owner lobby is particularly powerful when it comes to Ooh, swaying government uh, policy on this but perhaps perhaps i'm wrong i'm not an expert i think i think they are quite influential and i think mm. i think one person told me that i think grant chaps was previously before he became transport secretary was the uh appg for recreational aircraft chair for instance oh, of course there's and, an appg for uh, there, you know they're, 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 there's quite a lot of hobbyists in the country they're mm. They're probably the sort of people who also write letters to their MPs. Um, and, and obviously a lot of recreational pilots are pilots themselves uh, who are not currently working or are trying to keep their hours up because they only work a few hours uh, a month commercially. So because they're, 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 there's, there's still quite a few of them uh, and, and they can exert influence, especially if you're a minister who... And, and, and they, there are a lot more of them than drone startups. That, that's the other point. So I think I think... It's worth trying to make sure that they're not going to pose any political barrier. But also, I think it is a matter of fairness, right? We've we've told recreational pilots basically, which is an extremely expensive hobby. They've bought their aircraft or they've rented their aircraft, they've leased it. They're doing this. They've been doing it for years. We're going to impose this new regulation on you. I think it's not too unreasonable to say that this surprise regulation that you never would have expected to have come in place, and which you previously were told was not necessary. Um, we're going to make sure that you're not made worse off from it. It's, it's, you know, Boris spoke about in his conference speech about the Pareto improvement, right? Improvement that makes nobody worse off. I think this is a classic case where we have the Pareto uh, improvement solution. You know, pilots are as good as they, they previously were. Drone pilots now and drone companies are much better off than they were. No one, no one's losing out. Or the only, the only thing is a very, very, very nominal cost uh, to the government, but it is extremely small. It's a rounding error uh, on a rounding error in terms of what we spend on uh, infrastructure or what we spend on health, for instance. Call, call me old fashioned, and even if it is a small amount of money, I think I'd be a little bit hesitant about a government subsidy to people who already, te- probably more likely than not, are going to be on the higher kind of socioeconomic end of society for what is ultimately a personal benefit to them. You know, they're going to be the ones that aren't going to be crashing in into a, into a drone. So I, t- I take your point that's going to facilitate the industry. Um, maybe the industry should pay for it rather than um, uh, the, the taxpayer, or ideally the um, 
the the owners of recreational planes. What I'm kind of interested though is is um, picking up your your thoughts, Sam, on a proposal that we had um, in a paper I wrote for the ASI a few years ago when it called thinking about how to allocate the scarce resource in itself. Um, the, the current way, obviously, we we, we allocate airspace is. Um, it's currently it's it's a little bit of a tragedy of the commons you could say um, at a lower airspace at a lower altitude which is where the drones will be flying and then at higher altitudes is now there's effectively an allocative central control planning system um, through through NATs through air traffic controllers um, what we put forward as an idea was that in fact we should auction off the airspace we should privatize um, air corridors for the for these precise purposes and let rather than having NATs decide between different uses of um, airspace between different drone providers um, or VTOL um, air taxis. If you privatise it and then let a company like Uber determine who could use a space the best or Amazon or whatever else and have, a, a I guess, a privately competitive um, ownership scheme and a, a privately competitive management of that, um, you could end up with more efficient outcomes. So, yeah, I, th- I think... That I th- so I, th- I thought your paper was really interesting and... And it sort of builds upon sort of work, goes back to uh, Coase and his work at looking at spectrum, where the idea is if you auction off something with lots of externalities, you can find uh, better arrangements that are more efficient. And that's why uh, we have things like 4G and 5G now. Uh, the, 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 it's amazing how slow and sluggish the development was in terms of um, spectrum for, for about 40 years or so until uh, we really moved into auctioning off spectrum. I think there, there, are, there are potentially some issues because we, we spoke to people on different sides of this, this sort of debate. I think one of the concerns is if you move to a system where we're parceling off airspace entirely, um, you encounter a problem where um, it's essentially um, there could be hold-up problems. So you might own, you might have to go around, you might have to go a funny route, kind of like you would on a road uh, at that point. But also I think the other issue is beyond hold-ups, there's also just the case that we, we've not really got a hugely congested airspace at this this level for drones at the moment. So it's a problem potentially for the future. But at the moment, we just want to have as many aircraft as possible on there, and it's very unlikely we're going to hit those capacity constraints. Now, there are lots of different startups coming up with different models. So we sp- we actually spoke to the Civil Aviation Authority, and you know they were talking about different regulatory models. And what they were concerned with was, do, do they end up with um, accidentally imposing the rules of the road for the next 100 years. Uh, they were, they wanted to take as technology-neutral approach as possible. So we might have a system where it's, you have maybe seven or eight different air traffic controllers, and then you might have a meta-controller controlling communication between those air traffic controllers. That, that seems to be a business model a lot of people are talking about. Um, so you've got all of these specific problems and specific technological issues. So if you want, if you end up just parceling off the airspace to a specific air traffic controller, you might go down a uh, regulatory path that ultimately doesn't 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 work. So so I think it's important to stay as open-minded to different policy solutions as possible. There's there's probably definitely the space for use of more auctions in public policy in general. Uh, I think you make a very good case for slot auctions at airports, for instance. Um, but at the moment, I think the government is right to try and be as 
non-committal as, as possible about the, the right regulatory framework, provided that they are creating space for conspicuity and allowing as many different uh, air traffic control models to be trialled as possible. So first solve the conspicuity and next have as many big trials for that, that uh, UTM, which is what it's called, uh, as possible and work out what the best business model for that is. And just to finish up the final question, I think probably the most important for, for this sort of topic and section, and I want to get both your opinions on this, is was there ever a, a Gatwick drone? Are you truthers? <laughs> I, I did read the very long Guardian um, expose on the question of whether or not there ever was a real drone sighting. And I came around, around to the conclusion that there might not have been, that there, there was no actual no. evidence at any point whatsoever that there was there were any drones. Um, there was no recorded um, video of a drone. There were just claims by some of the Gatwick um employees that they had seen drones and then Gatwick just seemed to trust them that they'd been there. And when the military came in um, and put up some very advanced gear, they, they couldn't find anything at all. So I might just be a Gatwick drone truther myself. Excellent. Do you, do you share that view, Sam? I saw you rolling yeah, your there, eyes. There, 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 there was no Gatwick drone. <laughs> there's clearly no Gatwick drone. No, there, there was no photographic evidence of a Gatwick drone. There was no detection. They they ruined uh, that poor guy's Christmas. Uh, they ruined a lot of people's Christmas. Yeah, they, they wouldn't know. They would have arrested also, some guy. Yeah. Uh, they, they, now, they have lots of drones flying around to prevent this sort of thing from happening if it were to happen. They they did ruin that couple's Christmas, the ones that they arrested. But their subsequent uh, or, or their their next Christmas was probably a little bit better in that they got paid, I think, two hundred k for the trouble of being arrested and whatnot. But I'm glad that you both share my opinion on this, the most important issue when it comes to drone policy in general. And on that uh, very controversial note, I think it's probably time to bring the uh, this episode of the Pin Factory to a close. And thank you very much to my co-host and the ASI's head of research Matthew Lesh uh, as well as our special guest Sam Dimitri the research director at the Entrepreneurs Network if you like what you've heard then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and we look forward to joining you next week for another episode of The Pin Factory and more banter analysis. Mm -hmm.